Dean Elizabeth Dunn is our guest this week on Class Talkers. And she speaks about a wide range of higher education issues, including video games and smartphones in the classroom, the value of communication studies to employers, how the nature of work is changing in the 21st century, and how SUNY Oneonta is preparing for this challenge. You know, I've been here for about 15 years, and when I first came to the communications department, it was actually called the speech and theater department, and there were less than half as many majors at that time. Uh, I know you're relatively new. You've been here just about a year now. Uh, what is your perspective of the communication and media department, and where do you see it going five or ten years hence? So I, I'm very excited about what communication and media studies are doing. They, um, Among other things, they've completely redone their curriculum, and it has a lot of cutting-edge uh, items to it. So I see continued growth in communication and media studies. And media studies is inventing itself, really, for the first time. And communication studies is reinventing itself in light of the new technologies and the new way we think about um, how people communicate with one another and through what mediating technologies they use. In media studies, I see a lot of crossover in art, for example. So they're doing a lot of visual work, a lot of videography, um, and thinking more carefully about how you design good uh, visual and auditory experiences and useful ones. And in media studies, you can see some parallel developments happening with communication studies. So it's interesting, we're at this point right now where the two have divided into two different majors and two programs, um, but I see them converging again eventually because we're gonna be talking about the integrated experience of how do you communicate with one another in a multi-dimensional uh, way. So I think they'll be moving in that direction. And it's also emblematic to me in the liberal arts of the kind of the breakdown of um, disciplines in general, which over the course of my 35 year career, I've been seeing and watching happen. And it seems like it's accelerating now and our students learn in an integrated fashion. So it makes a lot of sense that at the university, that's what's gonna start happening. Well, in an earlier episode, I interviewed Karen Stewart, who as you may know is uh, trying to integrate various departments into the brave new world of video games, uh, which is a phenomenon that has a bright side and a dark side to it. Uh, the dark side being that it seems like uh, many young people, perhaps not so young people, are uh, wasting an extraordinary amount of time, by my reckoning, in, in uh, screen time. Uh, but on the other hand, the, 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 a lot of people, a lot of different disciplines can be brought together with something like that to be able to create something exciting that seems to be captivating the interest of, of young people. Uh, in our early meetings on the video game design uh, curriculum, we don't know yet if it's a major or minor or certificate or <laughs> what it is, but we will be early in for SUNY if we, we go this direction. We've had six or seven departments in those meetings, represented in those meetings. So art, music, communications, media, uh, history. But it, it's just, uh, it is an integrated experience. And um, 
while I agree that there is some waste of time in gaming, it's also intellectually very stimulating. The care that we have to take is that it has addictive qualities to it too. And there have been psychological studies indicating that that is the case. So we have to figure out how to use these things uh, with the power for positive that they have and how to limit the, the potential damage that they could carry along with it. When I first started teaching 15 years ago, I had to, when I went into a class, I had to tell my students, no talking boys and girls, Mr. Welch is going to start class now. I never have to do that anymore. No, they don't talk to each other, and that's distressing to me. So I will go to an honors banquet or a dinner or something where I'm sitting at a table of students, and next thing I know, they've pulled out their phones uh, and started using them. I was at a, uh, a dinner earlier this year, and I gave the opening remarks to it, and I talked to the students about how these are opportunities for networking. And it kind of helped, actually. Fewer people were doing that. They were actually talking to each other. Plus, we had tables, mixed tables of alums and current students, and they really did want to know what the alums were doing and how they got there and that kind of thing. So I, I do think that we need to be reminded once in a while that instruction is helpful <laughs> <laughs> and understanding the context and purpose of why we are together so that people aren't just texting and checking their email and things like that. Well, it's very difficult as an instructor to try to compete with the very compelling and seductive screen that uh, is just a click away. There's always something more interesting, always something more compelling, uh, always something more visually seductive than what's going on in the classroom, especially since these phones are largely used not because they're on the Smithsonian Institution website, but because they're speaking to one another in in some fashion. Is that what they mean by networking? Well, <laughs> I don't know what they mean by networking, but I think, you know, it's sort of the modern-day equivalent of passing notes in class a lot right. of times. It's just that they can do it a lot faster and to a lot more people at the same time. I haven't taught regularly for a number of years, but when I do teach, I structure time and use of their phones and small devices in the classroom and the rest of the time I expect them to keep them put away. I'm a historian by trade. I try to present a lot of visually attractive materials but I think it is a challenge to us as uh, teachers and professors to make class interesting and exciting enough that they're going to stick with us and that's not as easy as it used to be. The communications and media uh, department has seen rapid growth, as I alluded to earlier, we're up near around 650 or so majors. I don't want to see media and communication studies split. I've never wanted that, although there was a movement in our department to do that a, a few years ago. I hope that's been put to bed because I agree with you. I benefit from cross-pollinating uh, in both departments. I teach public relations on one side of the ledger, and I uh, have a background in in news, journalism, and uh, the electronic media, which is serviced by the other side of the department. Uh, so I hope uh, the attraction that we have for students is related as much to the content as to their immersion in media. I, I imagine it's both. Uh, and it's, I mean, I'm a historian, so I tend to take the long view of things. <laughs> so it's a relatively young discipline altogether in the, in the academy unlike history or mathematics or the more traditional classical disciplines. 
So as you probably know, sometimes communications is in with English departments, sometimes media studies now is growing out of English or art. So um, I think these are two areas that are really inventing and reinventing themselves in quite creative ways. And I do see that they will be, I think because they have so many tentacles in other fields, much like historians, we have no methodology of our own. We'll borrow from anybody. We're just not, uh, we, we have no shame when it comes to that. <laughs> and, and I think that in a, in a way, communication studies and media studies overlaps with so many other fields in a very similar way that I don't see the utility of separating them because they have a lot to talk about in common. When I was an undergraduate, I was an English literature major, and I, my minor was in history. I've come to find out in the open houses that I help the department conduct that, that parents are very concerned about what Johnny's going to be able to do uh, after they get out of here. What's the ROI? What's the return on investment? What kind of a job does this, does this lead to? And I'm concerned that subjects such as history, which I continue to be uh, very passionate about, are uh, somehow being left behind by uh, higher those seeking a higher education. Well, I think there might be a perception like that uh, in the public, but it's simply not true. And when you take a look at history as an example of a liberal arts that uh, has been under fire recently, um, the, first of all, the history major here at Oneonta is growing again. It did go down, but it's growing again. And uh, secondly, if you look at elite schools, they are just, um, you know, have huge history majors. It is the single most popular major in some of the um, uh, Ivy League schools. And the reason is, as I often tell parents, uh, liberal arts programs, you can do just about anything you want to when you graduate. If you have acquired the skills of reading and writing and critical thinking and uh, really understanding the human narrative, I think, is at the heart of a liberal arts uh, program, then, then you can learn to do almost anything. And I can't tell you how many employers I have talked to who, A, were history majors <laughs> or political science or some other liberal arts and uh, as an undergraduate, or B, they really want students to have a strong liberal arts background because they can, quote unquote, train them to the job, which is going to be changing constantly anyhow. So whatever technology uh, um, and those kind of skills that we teach them are going to become rapidly outdated, although they might get them started. In the long run, what's going to serve them well is this basic understanding of how humans communicate with each other and how the you know, human personality works and develops and how we interact with one another. Those are all just such critical skills that uh, employers really want them, and they feel they need them desperately right now. Right, and... Uh... Uh, you know, we have an unemployment rate which went down again today as we're, as we're taping this. Um, uh, the unemployment rate would appear to be uh, very, very low for people with a college education, even lower than the official rate. Mm -hmm. And yet some people are questioning the value of certain kinds of four-year degrees. Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps the liberal arts uh, needs to sell itself a little bit better to employers than it has in the past. I actually think in a lot of ways employers get it. Uh, I worry that we don't teach our students well enough how to sell themselves when they go out on the market. These are the skills I have. These are the experiences I had in college that make me a good employee. 
uh, and to really engage them in the application of the liberal arts. So um, I'm all for the beauty and aesthetic of liberal arts and for learning for learning's sake. I've always loved that even as a child. I guess I was destined for the liberal arts. And then just kind of an expanded notion of what we mean when we talk about liberal arts. So the liberal arts incorporate the sciences, the social sciences, the humanities, and the arts. And those really are at the heart of a university education. And that's what makes us human beings, that makes us flexible, that makes us lifelong learners, which is a phrase that gets thrown around a lot, but it actually is something that we we really, really need in modern society. Most people are not going to go off and have the same job for 35 years like our parents did or their parents even had a better shot at that kind of a work life. They're going to have um, much more change in their work lives, which means they're going to have to learn new things all the time. But I come back again to this understanding of human expression and be able to create human expression. I, I would only ask you to think about how many times you've read a user's manual that was just incomprehensible. <laughs> uh, we need people who can write and write to the ordinary person, to the lay person, um, as well as technical and uh, professional writing. So we have need for all kinds of things. And, and even though the sale of books is down, people are still reading a lot and they want creative material. They want to be interested and stimulated and entertained uh, by their media. And so we need people who can do that. And the combination of text, sound, and visual is still the most powerful combination of communication. And uh, absolutely is, as evidenced by YouTube, uh, which has uh, more screen time than just about any other medium because it contains the powerful combination of sight visualization and uh, motion pictures and animation very often to be able to create a powerful and often persuasive message uh, in the persuasive arts, uh, public relations and advertising, which I've been involved in, uh, video is now king. That's true, and I, and it's not just video, but also uh, pictorial things uh, that are in the print world. I try not to use my granddaughter too often as an example, but um, I think she's fairly a fairly common type of person who's she's graduating from high school this year. She wrote her first graphic novel when she was about eleven, uh, and she's an artist. And but she also loves reading and English and uh, stories and creating narrative. She also loves video and film. So she's existing in that world that is uh, here already for students her age and a little bit older, I would say. And um, as she looked for college programs, that's what she was looking for. Where can I exercise my creativity? Where can I still read and write a lot? Where can I be an artist? And that boundary right there is where I think a lot of students would like to operate. When I speak to parents at the open houses that I help to coordinate for our department, they often ask me what are the kinds of jobs that people can do with a, a degree in communications, and I always give them the smarty-pants answer of what can't you do? But uh, the nature of work, as you suggested earlier, is changing so rapidly that anybody who tells you they know where the jobs are going to be even five years from now is a fool or a liar, that the nature of work is changing so rapidly that uh, many experts say that the people graduating today will have four or five distinct careers over the 40 years of their work life. Mm -hmm. And some of them haven't been invented yet, some of those careers. And I really empathize with parents 
they would like security and certainty in the future for their children. We all have been there who uh, raised children and grandchildren. And it's hard to say right now exactly where the future is going to go. But I would also say, let's go back to the late 19th century when industrialization was getting underway. And really, we were facing the same kinds of issues. What's the future going to look like? We think we are experiencing rapid change now. I think about a great aunt that I had who was born in the horse and buggy period and yet was able to fly on planes before she uh, passed away. And that kind of a dramatic change uh, the United States has dealt with before. It hasn't always been pretty. Um, and this is much more global, I would say, although that was pretty global too, that brought us into the global world. But nobody has a crystal ball. We don't know what the future is going to look like. So what we have to do is educate students for a future that's uncertain and uh, make them learners, uh, make them curious. I think awakening a student's intellectual curiosity is maybe the single most important thing we do as educators. And it's less about the technical skills that we give them, although we don't want them to graduate without any. Um, and it's more about awakening their awareness of the world around them, how they relate to it, and being just curious about how things work and who people are and what they do and what they need. I'm concerned, and I'm sure you're aware of this, that uh, we've been told here at SUNY Oneonta that in the next 10 years or so, the number of uh, graduates from New York State high schools will begin a steady decline. What kind of a challenge does that represent for our school? I think it is a challenge. It's going to start sooner than 10 years. It's going to start in about four or five years, or you begin to see the drop-off of the population. I think the good news for Oneana is right now, at least, it's very well positioned. Uh, we are, in fact, beating the odds across SUNY in terms of our recruitment, and it's looking good for fall as well. Our students arrive here excited, and uh, we do a good job of engaging our students. So one of the things that we do really well is retaining students, and that's because we engage them both as students and as people in the Oneonta community. We have a retention rate that it hovers in about the mid-80s, 80, 83, 84, 85%. I think it's been as high as 86 and a half or something like that. And um, it has amazed me as a new administrator on campus how often I will bring this up and people are like, is that good? Yes, <laughs> that is very good. That is private liberal arts territory, not a regional public state university. So we're doing a lot of things right. I think our location is a real advantage for us. We're just far enough away from the larger urban areas that students can say I went away from home to school mm -hmm. uh, and yet they can get home if they need to get home and their parents don't feel like they're too far away plus we're we're a you know we're a very pleasant campus uh, in terms of the environment it's beautiful here lots of people have spent vacation time up here and they think you know very well of the area so they want to come back up here to school and I think Oneonta has just done a great job of positioning itself to continue to outpace whatever the averages are in the SUNY system. We have the right mix of programs for a lot of students, both liberal arts and applied and professional studies. I think that's a very good combination right now. We have faculty that care about their students. A, a, kind, a culture of caring exists on this campus that uh, is one of the things that attracted me here. It was quite obvious when I first got here. So I think we will continue to, to out outpace um, other schools in the area but we can't be complacent we can't just sit on our heels and think well we're doing great so we're just going to keep doing what we're doing you have to constantly uh, 
be on the lookout for why do students leave us? What could we have done better? Uh, how could we have handled that better? How could we have um, attracted not just new students, but sophomores to come back to be juniors and, and, uh, and retain them over the long haul? So we definitely can't be complacent, but we are positioned very well right now. We also benefit from the fact that we have Someone told me there's 65,000 alumni out there uh, who have, generally speaking, I think, nice things to say about their four years here in uh, central New York. And um, that's an important network that our students need to be able to know exists and they can tap into. It absolutely is, and I think that's uh, one of the reasons that the little lunch that I was at had both alumni and students there. I was excited to see that because our students need to be in touch with alums, and I think we need uh, we we probably need to enlarge our uh, online presence for alumni and students to interface uh, using the social media and the new technologies. That would be helpful, but I think you're absolutely right. I'm I um, I'm looking forward to my first. Alumni event this summer. I haven't seen it here yet, but I hear a lot of positive talk about what a great relationship we have with our alumni and the fact that we do so well in the fundraising world is usually a good indicator that you've got a strong alumni base. And I have talked to students at recruiting events that their parents graduated from Oneonta and even if they hadn't had it on their original list, their parents are like, no, no, I wanted them to come here and see this campus and talk to people on this campus. So I think they're some of our best recruiters. So do you miss the classroom? Do you miss teaching history? Oh, of course I miss the classroom. I um, I try to get in every once in a while if I can. The, the demands of being a dean are such that I worry that I wouldn't do my students service if I tried to teach and uh, be an administrator at the same time. I haven't taught here yet. I did teach at my last two institutions where I was a dean when I could. I couldn't teach very often, but when I could. And the solution I kind of hit on was to team teach with somebody <laughs> so that if I absolutely have to go attend to this crisis, I know there's somebody else in the classroom that the students will have there with them. I've been heavily involved with a pedagogy called Reacting to the Past, which operates out of Barnard College down in New York. So it's kind of fun for me to be a little closer by to that group of people. And it's a uh, very um, highly developed intellectual role play games in the classroom. These are in the class, not uh, video games. And uh, um, I'm still developing pedagogical work in that area. So I was the lead author on what we call the Darwin game, which deals with evolution and Darwin's writing and the origin of species. And right now I am working on a new game on Seneca Falls and the Women's Right Convention. Well, that's fascinating. So this is new in the instruction of history? Well, it's, it's I mean, new in historical terms, I guess. It's been around for about 15, 20 years. Over, uh, well over 300 institutions are using reacting to the past in some way, and it's not mostly taught by historians. It's mostly taught by other people. Uh, it's very popular in first and second year uh, seminars, for example, where you're trying to do the things that we talk about as liberal arts people. We're trying to engage the students, teach them about learning, get their curiosity awakened, uh, teach them to be kind of self-motivated, self-asserted students, and understand also that, that learning happens from one another uh, in, in college almost as, as much as it happens between you and the faculty member. And your specialty in history, what was that? 
I'm an American intellectual historian, so I kind of range around in American history, and I, th I think a lot about ideas and what impact they've had on shaping politics and society and religion and culture and science and the way we perceive all of those things. My original area of expertise was the invention of paper money. Um, Interesting. Which we had one of, one of the early, early large-scale experience with, with paper money started in the 1690s in the American colonies. Hmm. So that, that, that was a fun and interesting area of research, and I'm still very interested in money and how we think about money. The latest audio book that I'm doing at the moment, I just finished the first volume of James K. Polk, who was a not-so-memorable uh, president uh, who perhaps his greatest achievement was starting the Mexican War. But leading up to that, uh, there were discussions about hard money and uh, metallic money and um, whether or not we should have a national bank and, uh, and preparatory to the Civil War discussion about whether or not uh, uh, cotton tariffs were the right way to fund the federal government and uh, those New York bankers are taking advantage of us. And uh, it was an interesting period in, uh, in history that probably could serve us well today to look at again. Well, some things don't change that much, right? We're still <laughs> arguing over all of this, and we didn't go off the gold standard until the Nixon administration. That's right. He took us off the gold standard. $35 an ounce. Yeah, right. And we used to have our dollar bills used to say silver certificate on them so that you could get, you had, the government would have had to produce the bullion if, if uh, you asked for it. Um, so all of that has changed rapidly, even in my lifetime. Uh, the Jacksonian period, which of which Polk is a part, is very interesting when it comes to our arguments over money. And it, it often comes down to what kind of economy do we want to have? So some people benefit from inflation, and among those were farmers and small producers who benefited from inflation. And paper money can be very inflationary, and it can be controlled inflationary. And if you think about it, if what you produce is worth more when you sell it than it was when you were making it, then that's an advantage for you. Whereas bankers and uh, um, capitalists of other kinds are anti-inflationary, so they always wanted to have bullion and the gold standard, and we have a huge argument over silver versus gold in the late 19th century during the populist movement, and that's actually where I started my work. I got very interested in the populist movement. I grew up on a farm. I was fascinated by these radical farmers who were arguing about the fundamentals of the economy, and it struck me as one of the last times we had that kind of an argument in the United States before industrialization really took root and took hold. And as I worked my way back, I found out that all of that started in the 1690s. So yeah. um, it, was, it was a fascinating experience to do that research. And even today, there are people who argue whether or not deficit spending is really an issue. It's not an issue if you have the world's reserve currency. Well, I mean, one of the early things that happened, of course, was a recognition, even in the early 19th century, that debt can be a good thing for a nation. It establishes your credibility. Um, it allows you to expand, especially if you don't have a lot of currency, which we did not at that point. And yeah, it can put you into the power position. And once you're in the power position, then it definitely helps. So because everybody has to borrow from you. Everybody has to borrow from you. And, 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 and you can print. And you can print. You just have to be careful not to print too much. <laughs> and, you know, you have these kind of rogue economies that uh, um, 
emerge occasionally. The Weimar in Germany is a classic example of uh, inflation and just printing money, money to try to make up for it. Right now, Venezuela has an economy that's gone a little berserk. So these are delicate instruments, and you have to be careful how you use them and manage them. They can be, you know, for good, or they can really crash an economy. So where do you think uh, SUNY Oneonta is going? Where does it place itself in the next several years? Are you confident that uh, we're going to maintain our position as a relatively affordable, uh, comprehensive college? Well, I think that's the plan, and um, we have a new president. She's still getting to know the place. I'm relatively new. We're going to have a new provost uh, starting in July, so you've got a lot of new leadership on campus. What I'm mostly hoping is that we don't reorganize the academic units again anytime soon because we kind of need to settle down and and get policies in place and get our work done, and I think that's what's going to happen. This is a really strong campus. This is a successful campus. One of my goals as a dean is to establish useful policies and procedures that will take some of the workload off of chairs, for example. Our chairs work really hard here. We need to eliminate some redundancies in decision making and kind of straighten out some things, but all of that builds on the success that's already here and the hard work that people have engaged in for many years since I've been here. So I do think we're really well positioned. I think we'll We'll probably start some new programs, you know, in response to the market. But I think we'll keep the liberal arts strong and at the center of the campus. Thank you for your time, Dean Dunn. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Good. So what inspired this series of conversations? Well, that's a good question. Um, As you may know, I do audio books, and I have a background in radio and television news. So um, I've always considered myself to be a a student of audio because it's so easy to do and it's becoming, uh, many people believe that this is the new way of reading Mm. and the ubiquity of cell phones and the fact that everybody has their music on here also leaves room for something else which is fact-based non-fiction, let's say, Mm -hmm. uh, audio. Mm -hmm. And um, since I do audio books for audible.com and iTunes, Uh, I'm aware of the statistics in the publishing industry that uh, print books are doing this, e-books are doing this, and audio books are doing this. Wow. It's the only part of the publishing industry that's growing. Uh Some people say this is becoming the new way of reading. Mm -hmm. So if that's the case, rather than change them, let's join them and create a new channel for distributing information about what the faculty's doing or passionate about, Mm -hmm. um, in addition to uh, the academic pursuits that they get paid for and the the scholarly work that they uh, enjoy doing. Well, it sounds like fun. You've been listening to a conversation with Dr. Elizabeth Dunn, Dean of the School of Liberal Arts at the State University of New York. And this has been Class Talkers, I'm Tim Welch.